please open a copy of God's Word with me to John chapter 13. We're only going to be looking at verses 18 to 20 today, but I'd like to give us some context to start reading in verse 12 all the way down to verse 30. So let's uh, listen to the reading of God's Word now. John 13, verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your teacher and your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to them. Some thought that because Judas had, had the money bag... Jesus was telling them, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you have uh, done it again this morning. You send your rain to fall on the just And the unjust. You have revealed your incredible mercies. They are, in fact, new every morning. And we have been given a picture of them this morning in the the rains that are falling on this ground outside. And I pray that you would show us mercy this morning, too, that, that all people in here would know the living Christ more deeply after this message, that you would pour out your Spirit upon us and fill us with His presence and His power to illuminate our minds that we might see the glory of Christ. And I pray that in seeing Him, we would be further equipped to serve 
in this world and to endure in the mission until Jesus returns. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, to get started, let me set before you the big picture of today's message by having you first look again at verse 20. Jesus says there, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives the one who's, whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. These words anticipate the day when Jesus would send out his disciples on a mission. We see this in chapter 20, verse 21. He breathes on the Holy breathes upon them, says, Receive the Holy Spirit, and he says, Just as the Father sent me into the world, so I send you. Just as the Father sent his Son on a mission to save the world, so Jesus would eventually send his disciples to, to continue his mission to save the world. And many of us, by grace, find ourselves part of that mission this morning. But before Jesus does any, any sending here, he needs to prepare his disciples. And, and the way he prepares them throughout John 13 is by equipping them to understand his own mission and by equipping them to understand who he is and by equipping them to understand themselves in relation to him. So if you're a disciple this morning, you're in training right now. You need to view this text. This is how Jesus equips you for your mission in the world. He explains his own mission. He tells you who he is. And then he wants you to see who you are in relation to him. You need to understand those three things if if your faith is going to survive as his disciple. Especially in in a world that is full of betrayal and evil. And that at times feels like it's spinning out of control. So first of all, let's look at what he says about his mission. We need to see that Jesus' mission was planned in Holy Scripture. Jesus' mission was planned in Holy Scripture. Jesus has just finished telling all 12 disciples that they would be blessed. They would be be happy, glad-hearted if they practiced the humility of their master. Jesus humbly washed their feet and and they would be blessed to follow his example as as his own love compels them to to give and and to serve and, and, and to lay down their lives for others. But not all of them would experience this promised blessing. Not all of them would know the happiness that is found in Jesus' humility. He says in verse 18, I am not speaking of all of you. I am not speaking of all of you. He's referring to Judas because Judas is going to betray him. He did this earlier in verse 10. He says there, you are clean. And he's talking to all 12 disciples. You are clean, but not every one of you. Not every one of you. And verse 11 then tells us that Jesus knew who was going to betray him. It's Judas, again. The same exclusion is occurring here, but in reference to the the blessedness of imitating Jesus' sacrificial love. Judas will not know the blessedness of being a true disciple much longer. He will walk away from all the joy that Jesus is calling him to in these verses. But here's the thing, it's, it's, it's happening, this is, this is all unfolding just as God planned it in Holy Scripture. Uh, even better, Jesus 
chose Judas as part of his inner circle for the purpose of fulfilling the scriptures. I know whom I have chosen, Jesus says. And Judas is included in the mix. Just like he's included in the mix in chapter 6, verse 70. If you want to look there with me. Chapter 6, verse 70. Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Judas is included here. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. He who ate my bread. This is an expression of, of, of intimacy. This, this is, he's been invited to the table and you are share, he's sharing in the family meal. This one, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Another expression, of, but, a, but one of deep treachery, treason, betrayal. We then find, we read earlier, Jude, Judas and Jesus eating bread together in the following In these following verses, and Judas leaves during the meal to betray Jesus, just as Jesus said it would happen. The point here is that Jesus' mission could unfold in no other way than to have one of his closest friends betray him because God had already spoken. It had already been written about him long before in Psalm 41, a psalm of David. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I have trusted, who ate my bread, he has lifted up his heel against me. It's a psalm of David. Now on closer look, We may wonder, you know, how in the world Psalm 41 actually anticipates Jesus' betrayal. When we turn back in our Bibles to Psalm 41, not only do we find that Psalm 41 is about David and describing the sufferings that David faced in his own lifetime, but even more, Psalm 41 verse 4 says the man of Psalm 41 is a sinner. He needs God to show him grace and heal him because he has sinned against God, it says in verse 4 of Psalm 41. And we know the Bible says elsewhere that Jesus is no sinner. So how could it be that Psalm 41, which is a psalm about David, who is a sinner, how could it be that Psalm 41 anticipates Jesus' betrayal? How does Jesus' betrayal fulfill Psalm 41? Well, here's where we need to enter a short lesson on how to read our Bibles. Many times when we think of Old Testament prophecy being fulfilled in Christ, we think merely along lines of direct fulfillment, where a specific reference is given to the Messiah in in the Old Testament, and we then find its direct fulfillment in the New Testament. Many times the Bible does just that. But if that's the only category of prophecy we have to work with, we'll often leave our study of Scripture scratching our heads. Like, when I'm reading the Old Testament, that ain't referring to Jesus. What's he talking about? We'll leave confused over how Jesus fulfills this or that Old Testament passage. 
And such a limited perspective on prophecy has even led some people to, to wonder if the apostles just got it all wrong. If the apostles were forcing the Old Testament to say things about Jesus that it wasn't really saying at all. We don't have to draw those conclusions, especially when we know that all of Scripture is breathed out by God, whether the Old or New Testament, and God never contradicts Himself. What we need to do is broaden our understanding of prophecy. There are direct fulfillments of Old Testament prophecy, but more often than not, prophecy is fulfilled along, along lines of what some have called typology. T-Y-P-O-L-O-G-Y. Typology. You don't have to use that word, but I want you to get the concept. To put it simply, typology looks at the way God reveals himself in the Bible through specific events, persons, and institutions in the Old Testament which point to or or typify, they they foreshadow, they're, they're painting a picture of something that's looking forward to something else. And that something else is the future realities bound up with Christ and his kingdom. Okay, so there are events. We can think of events like the Exodus or the flood. These are events. Uh, there, are, there are persons such as, uh, as Adam and Melchizedek and Moses and David and, and the priests and all the judges and all the, all the prophets. And, and there are even institutions in the Old Testament, such as, such as the Passover. We've looked at that through, several times through in John's Gospel. The Passover, the temple, or, or the, whole, the whole ceremonial and sacrificial system under the law. All of these things, all these events, all these persons, all these institutions reveal patterns that then point to the way God plans to work in the future through Christ and His kingdom. They're written and explained in a fashion that anticipates the day God would bring them to their intended goal in Christ. But keep this in mind, the New Testament fulfillment always surpasses the Old Testament types. The New, the New Testament reality always outshines the Old Testament shadows. That doesn't diminish the Old Testament types and pictures at all. It just helps us see that the entire Bible has a continual forward-moving thrust. When, it's, when you're reading Leviticus and when you're reading Numbers and when you're reading Deuteronomy, it's got a forward-moving thrust. It's trying to get you into Christ and His kingdom, which is where the story is heading. So it const- constantly wants us landing in Christ and His kingdom. So let that kind of thinking inform your reading of of prophecy. So what about Psalm 41? Well, in this case, it's a psalm of David. And David, in his role as God's anointed king over Israel, becomes a type that looks forward to Christ. You can even see this already happening in, in, in the prophets themselves, like Isaiah and Ezekiel, who are telling the people to expect David to come again and rule over God's people. And you're going, wait a minute, David's in the grave. It's looking forward to a greater David. So David becomes a type that looks forward to to Christ, who is the greater David. So what happens is is that the the way David represented the nation of Israel in government and in battle, 
The way David stood firm against God's enemies, we can think of David and Goliath here. The way David related to God as as a father relates to a son, the way David prays, the way David suffers, the way David triumphs over his enemies, all these aspects of David's life anticipate the way God would work through his much greater Davidic king, Jesus Christ. So what we see in Psalm 41 is that God ordained David's sufferings and had him write about his sufferings in such a way that they anticipated the sufferings of Jesus It's just that Jesus' sufferings are far superior to David's sufferings because of who Jesus is. He's the Son of God. He's not a sinner like David. His sufferings are greater because of who he is. So are his triumphs. David's betrayal by his closest friend anticipated the betrayal of Jesus by one of his closest friends. It's just that when Jesus' closest friend betrays him, it will actually lead to Jesus' death. He's greater. David's betrayal was merely by a human friend, and this anticipated Jesus being betrayed by a human friend. It's just that Jesus was also enduring the onslaughts of the devil himself when the devil entered Judas. Jesus' sufferings are greater. David's sufferings anticipated the sufferings of Jesus. It's just that when Jesus endured his sufferings, he did so without sin against God. He's better than David. David was vindicated in Psalm 41 for his faithfulness to God while suffering. And this anticipated Jesus' faithfulness to God in the midst of his suffering. It's just that when Jesus suffered, he suffered even to the point of death under the wrath of God, something David never experienced. Under the wrath of, he suffered under the wrath of God in place of sinners like you and me, and that's why God vindicated Jesus ultimately and set him at his right hand in heaven. The point is that for Jesus to fulfill the scripture of Psalm 41 means for Jesus to bring all the revelatory patterns of David's life to their intended goal. God had mapped out the plan in Holy Scripture, a plan that included the betrayal and sufferings of his own anointed Davidic king, and Jesus was now fulfilling that plan right before the eyes of his disciples. He was suffering betrayal as the superior anointed Davidic king. It was part of his mission. It was preordained by God. But we shouldn't even stop there. We shouldn't stop there. The New Testament writers don't stop there. If Jesus was suffering as the superior anointed Davidic king, then that means we should expect other patterns and promises linked to David's kingship to be fulfilled as well. David represented his people in battle, but there's only one king who secured victory over all our enemies when he went to battle with sin, death, and the devil on the cross and defeated them all when God raised him from the dead. David was given power to protect God's people from human enemies, but Jesus Christ, who is now risen from the dead, has power to protect God's people from cosmic enemies like, like Satan and the powers and principalities of the air. David was given authority to bring peace for God's people, but the peace that David brought for his people didn't last did it. Read First and Second Kings. Moreover, the peace that David brought for his people, it didn't cover the whole earth. But of Jesus' government, Isaiah tells us, and of Jesus' peace, there will be no end. He will establish his kingdom with justice and with righteousness forever. All of these things are bound up with Jesus' mission, which was planned and revealed by God in Holy Scripture. And that's just, that's just some of the trajectories we see in David. 
Now, I want to get to application in just a second, but not without pointing you briefly to, to Jesus' identity, which he alludes to in verse 19. So Jesus, Jesus prepares us for mission by helping us grasp that his own mission was planned beforehand in Holy Scripture. Now he prepares us for mission by revealing his identity as the Lord who controls all history. Jesus is the Lord who controls all history. Verse 19 says, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Now, most English translations add the pronoun he to the end of that sentence. But the he is not present in the Greek. It can be translated simply that when it does take place, you may believe that I am. That I am. He's referring once again to his own deity. He did this three times in chapter 8. I am was God's personal name that he revealed to Moses before rescuing them from Egypt. In, in, in Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses at the burning bush, when you go to them, you tell them, I am who I am. You say this to the people of Israel, I am sent me to you. Not I am who you think I am or, or I am what I will be one day, some down the road. No, I am who I am. I am absolute reality. That's what you tell them when you go back. Isaiah 43.10, I, I am before me. No God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Jesus is calling attention to his deity by taking on God's personal name. But he's doing more than just taking on the name. I am. He's doing, he's doing more than that. He's explaining that he's explaining the sort of God he is. And you don't have to know Greek to get what Jesus is saying about who he is. But you do need to know your Bibles. Especially passages like Isaiah 46, verses 9 to 10. You can go there with me. Isaiah 46, 9 to 10. You can find that on page 607 if you're using a pew Bible. And while you're turning there, uh, keep in mind that Jesus has just told his disciples what's going to happen with Judas before it actually happens. Isaiah 46, God is calling Israel away from the idolatry of the nations to, to trust in him. He's mocking all the idols of the nations. Then he says this in chapter 46, verse 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. This is, this is, this is who God is. This is what He's like. Jesus is identifying himself with Yahweh in the Old Testament when he's telling the disciples what's going to happen before it actually happens so that when it does happen, they might believe that I am. By telling the disciples how Judas will betray him before it actually happens, Jesus is helping them see that he is none other than the only true God of the universe. 
He declares the end from the beginning. When he, gives the counsel, when he gives them the counsel about his betrayal, he is showing the disciples that his counsel will stand, that he will accomplish all his purpose, and there's no one who can thwart him whatsoever, not even the treachery of someone in the inner circle, not even the devil himself who enters Judas. Everything is under his control and his authority, and they need to believe this about him, and you need to believe this about him. If you're going out as God's representatives in this evil world full of evil and betrayal and darkness, you need to believe this about Him. Jesus' mission is planned in Holy Scripture and Jesus is the Lord who controls all history. This is absolutely crucial for us to cling to when we're on mission because it guards us from despair when we face a world wrought with so much sin and pain and evil. It helps to know that Jesus doesn't just predict the future. He creates the future. He is sovereign over all of history so that it will finally reach its glorious destination. Things are not spinning out of control. When ISIS takes over Iraq and all the Christians are fleeing. Things are not spinning out of control when government agencies lie to one another about what's going on in the world. When presidents and judges approve the murder of babies. When Bulgaria is ravaged by deadly floods. And when certain orphanages in Haiti pretend to be noble while selling kids into the sex industry behind closed doors. God sees everything. God knows everything. He has a plan to deal with it all, and His Son, Jesus Christ, entered history as part of that plan to redeem the world from all of its bondage to corruption. I met an eight-year-old little boy yesterday. His name was Jake. I could tell he was... a. a I was on my way in to the office, and he was wandering around the streets, and it was obvious that he was lost and so I stopped and asked if he needed any help and he said yes he thought he had missed the bus for summer school it was Saturday dad was in jail mom is at work his 15 year old brother was supposed to be watching him and his baby sister at home but he wasn't he was gone he was so confused and didn't know what to do there was just great uh, despair all over his uh, face, no Christ, no testimony, no knowledge of Jesus' sovereign power to save him. And our, and our children get the scriptures in our home, and our children get dig Sunday school, and our children... After getting the, the assistance of the police, I got, I got to the office and I cried out to God for Jake and his family and thousands of others just like him in Tarrant County. And the reason I could cry out to God is because this God controls all of history. And this God can make a difference. And this God knows Jake. And this God can save Jake. He's Jake's only hope and he's our only hope. For salvation. I was reminded from our passage 
That the, that the world may be broken and sinful and dark and overwhelmingly needy, but Jesus isn't finished with His purposes yet. And He has the power and the authority to ensure it reaches that day when the skies roll back like a scroll and He establishes a kingdom of peace and glory on earth. If things weren't spinning out of control when Judas did the infinitely atrocious and betrayed the only Son of God. If things weren't spitting out of control when Satan appeared to gain the upper hand over Jesus. If things weren't out of control when the most heinous crimes in history consumed the Son of God. Then they're not spinning out of control now. God's counsel stands and the cross is a testimony to that. Jesus' betrayal is a testimony to that. Jesus' resurrection is a testimony to that. God's purposes will be accomplished. He tells the disciples later on in chapter 16, I have said these things to you. I've said all these things. This is why I'm telling you these things. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation. He tells them up front. You're going to have tribulation. You're going to suffer in this world. But take art, I have overcome the world. I don't know how people live in this world without Jesus and a vision of his sovereign majesty over everything. It's all the more reason for us to bring Christ into the lives of others who do not know him. More than that, when we represent Jesus in the world, he's well aware of the betrayal and suffering and persecution and doubts and objections that will come against the disciples. He knows the trials we we will face. Not everybody will receive his disciples like they ought. Can you imagine the objections that may arise even within the disciples themselves? Not just the objections that are coming against them, but when they see their Lord hanging on a cross. You followed a guy who got hung up on a tree. Not even his closest friend believed him, thought he was lame, turned him over to the authorities. Jesus was preparing them for when their own doubts would rise and he was preparing them to endure the ridicule of others. He set their eyes on the word of God which spoke beforehand of all that was happening. A word that revealed the truth about all that was happening. He didn't want them creating their own stories about what was happening when When Judas betrayed Jesus. We do this. We see things going on and we start trying to create our own stories and building those stories off false assumptions and everything else. And then the world is just collapsing on us. Jesus is speaking to them so that they don't create stories like that. Stories like maybe he just isn't who he is after all. Stories like maybe we're all just a bunch of fools for following him. Stories like maybe evil is actually going to win. Jesus is grounding them in the Bible storyline, not the ones they create. He's saying, pay attention to what's true about me in here. Nothing can stop my purposes. Nothing happens by accident. Nothing escapes my counsel. Everything is unfolding just as planned. Read this book when I'm taken out of the world. 
And you tell people what the Bible says was really going on in my betrayal. I was suffering just like God planned it so that you would be saved. Folks, if you're not reading God's Word and feeding your soul with its truth, you will be destroyed by the stories you create. The darkness will swallow you up. The enemy's lies will eat up your faith day by day. Sin will deceive you and cause you to drift away from Jesus. But the Word of God gives us the proof of Jesus' power and control over all things. And we need it. We need it to overcome our sin. We need it to overcome the enemy's lies. We think of how Jesus dealt with Satan in the wilderness. Scripture, Scripture, Scripture. This is the right story. We need it to overcome sin and the devil. We need it to comfort our anxieties, to strengthen our weak knees, and to give us courage to face trials as we serve as God's representative in a hostile and evil world. Jesus graces them with his mission and his identity in Scripture before his betrayal so that they remain his own disciples through the betrayal. Why didn't they walk away? He knows what they need to survive the darkness of the next few hours, and he speaks to generate their faith. So what are you grasping for in desperation? Is it Christ? Where are you going to understand the the, the truths about things in the world when, when darkness is drawing near? Is it the Word of God which bears witness to Christ? The Lord who controls all things. The Davidic king who entered history and suffered that you might enter his kingdom free of sin. Where is your trust residing when traitors raise their heads? Where is your hope when betrayal comes upon you and your family? It must be in Christ who knew it all from the beginning and who is directing the course of all things to a glorious end. Hold fast to Jesus' words. They are precious in the midst of the world's struggles. Until Jesus returns, evil will creep in here and there and cause deception and betrayal and apostasy. But we should remain steadfast, knowing that Christ governs all things. He is never caught by surprise, and He will remain faithful to redeem us, just as He was faithful to redeem us in the face of Judas' own betrayal and Satan's deception. One more way Jesus prepares us for mission. He tells us who we are in relation to Him. When we embrace what the Scriptures say about Jesus, when we trust that He controls all of history, even in the midst of our calamities, then Jesus delights in making us God's representatives on earth. Jesus delights in making us God's representatives on earth. Now we're back where we started. Verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. There is such a solidarity here between, between Jesus and his disciple. So every one of you who, who claim Jesus is your Lord and your Savior, your treasure, each, each one of you, there is such a solidarity between Jesus and you That to receive you is to receive Jesus. To receive the disciple is to receive Jesus. 
I'm reminded of Paul's words, uh, I mean, not Paul's words, uh, Jesus' words, uh, to Paul, actually, in, in Acts chapter 9, verse 4, right? Paul's going around, ravaging the church, persecuting all the, Christ, all the Christians, all the disciples of Jesus, and Jesus stops him on the Damascus road. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me, he says. Why are you persecuting me? The disciples were so united to Jesus that to persecute them was to persecute Jesus, The same unity is being portrayed here. To receive Jesus' disciples is to receive Jesus himself. And to receive Jesus is to receive God. That's what I mean. We are God's representatives. Now that's both amazing and sobering. At the same time, it's amazing and it's sobering. If if, if you are a disciple of Jesus, it's, it's amazing because none of us are worthy to be called God's representatives. None of us. We have done nothing to, our, to, to put ourselves in this position. Like everybody else in the world, we, we too have fallen short of the glory of God. And there's nothing we could contribute to convince God to make us His representatives. It's even worse. We didn't want to be His representatives. And apart from grace, we would have never wanted such a position before Him. If anything, our sinful nature wanted nothing to do with God. And, and all we deserved was to be crushed under God's wrath for it. And now we're called Jesus' disciples. Now God is pleased to have us represent Him to the world. Folks, this, this, the Lord's grace in this is astonishing. Jesus' mission is so complete. His life and death and resurrection is so sufficient and, and comprehensive for us that God can turn rebels against Him into representatives for Him. Through the work of Jesus, God has taken us from the pit of destruction and given us a place of highest service in the entire cosmos. This is what Ephesians says, right? When Paul says, we have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places far. And where is he? Where is he? Above all rule, authority, and power, and dominion. We've been given the place of highest service in the world, that of bringing God himself into the lives of others. That's true of everybody here who follows Jesus, from elders to stay-at-home moms, from care group leaders to children's ministry servants, from seasoned married couples to singles, from students to professionals. Everybody who follows Jesus serves in the highest position on earth because of the work of Jesus. We need to leave amazed at God's transforming work in our lives, and we need to wake up every morning amazed at God's transforming work work in our life. We stand as God's representatives. We sh- I would also invite uh, those of you who are not Christians to consider that Jesus' work on the cross was enough to make you God's representatives as well. If you will trust Jesus and if you will obey Jesus. If you don't follow Jesus, you are giving up living as God intended you to live which was with Him, seated with Him in the heavenly places. He made you to represent Him on earth. He made you to bear His image and to reflect His glory on the earth, but your sin isn't allowing you to live that way. Even worse, your sin has so marred the image of God that He will not allow you into His kingdom on the last day. He will have to destroy you for not bearing His image, not representing Him, and He will do so for eternity. But you need to know that's why Jesus came. 
He came to live the life that you could never live. He then died on the cross, not for the sins that were his own, but for your sins. And then God raised him from the dead so that you could, li- you could live in a new life. The life he gives in the spirit to all who trust in him. It's a life in which God's image is then restored in you because Christ, who is the perfect image of God, is in you through the spirit. He will be pleased to make you his representative too if you trust him, if you give him everything To be called God's representative is amazing. At the same time, it's very sobering. It's very sobering. The sense of of receiving in this verse is not merely a a formal greeting of sorts. Like they just welcomed you into their home, you had some dinner, you shared the gospel, and then you leave. This receiving is a wholehearted embrace of the disciple. And all the disciple stands for in his witness and service to Christ. In other words, you come over and they join your team under the Lord Jesus Christ. Most immediately, Jesus is referring to the 11 in our passage. He's going to send these 11 out as authorized apostles. And if people embrace their testimony and imitate their faith, then they will get Christ. But this is, uh, is, is later extended to the whole church insofar as the church holds fast to their testimony. Holds fast to imitating their lives. So it applies to all of us at another level. The idea is that our solidarity with the Lord Jesus is so much a part of who we are, His mission so, much, so characterizes us in everything that others can tell who you belong to. Others can look and observe your life and go, that, that man's a follower of Jesus. And this is what they're doing throughout the book of Acts. They t- they're taking note. These men are Jesus followers. People can tell who you belong to. People can tell who you treasure the most in this world. People can tell who, who it is that shines most from your words and your deeds. So it's sobering because it causes us to ask, how are we representing God when we go about our day-to-day work? When we go about our, our day-to-day uh, taking care of our children, when we go, when we go about our, when we're teaching in school, when we're, when we're doing these various things, when we're driving a truck, right? How, how, how do we, how is it that we're representing God? Can others tell that, that Jesus is your treasure? Is Jesus' name on your lips when, when you encounter folks? You know, is, is your primary identity bound up with Jesus or is it bound up with something else, like your vocation? Or your role at home, or or your favorite hobby, maybe your food preferences and diet. Where is your primary identity bound found? Would others be able to to see your good deeds, as Jesus says in in, in Matthew 5:16? See your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. For some of us, I, I actually think this is very much the case. And we should we should rejoice at what the Lord is doing in various brothers and sisters' lives. We should also rejoice even over, over the little things that he's begun to do in some of our lives. But none of us should be content with where we are this morning in representing him. We should be striving to maturity in representing Jesus both in our words and in our deeds. And Jesus has already given us a, a picture of what it looks like in verses 1 to 17. We just have to go back and read it, right? We humble ourselves to serve the eternal well-being of others. That's what he does. 
when he washes his disciples' feet and goes to the cross. We lay down our lives to see people prospering in the Lord. This is how he sends us into the world to represent him. Some of us might even need to ask, you know, whether, whether we even view ourselves this way. We, we might need to start there today when we go home. Am I even viewing myself as God's representative? I'm trusting Christ. His death for, for me. His righteousness is now me. I stand before God clothed in His beautiful righteousness. And now what? Am I waking up each morning viewing myself as His representative? No, if you don't, or perhaps you have trouble doing so, then dwell further on, on the words of Jesus and the comprehensive nature of His love to you. This is how transformative it is. It's not a love that, that, that saves you to leave you where you were. It saves you to then change you to, to more, more and more be like Him. He refuses to leave you the same once He saves you. He desires to make you a different person. He desires to fit you to be his ambassador on the earth. To, to authorize you to speak on his behalf to others so that, you, so that they too might know God. So I just encourage you to embrace your high calling as a Christian and speak on God's behalf and serve others for his namesake. The one who controls all of history is for you. How do we know he's for you? Because he came on a mission. A mission that involves him becoming a Davidic king who suffers unto death under God's wrath that he might rise again and bring us into his everlasting kingdom. We see it laid out in Scripture. We see it being fulfilled right before the disciples' eyes as Jesus speaks to them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask that you would direct all of our attention to Jesus uh, in the coming weeks, that we would be so caught up with, with the way you have loved us in him that we give everything up to, to follow him, to go hard after him, to, to, to serve others, to see them embrace him and all that you are for us in him. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.